0: Good evening, and welcome to the Shaman's Brew. Well, it's October. Time for the final harvest as the wheel of the year comes to an end and the veil between the worlds grows ever so thin. Samhain, or Halloween, is rapidly approaching. We can see it in the color-changing leaves and the long-growing shadows, and we can feel it in the brisk morning air deep within each one of us there is a stirring of change about to take place because we too are influenced by the forces of nature's turning wheel. We are as much a part of nature as the trees in the forest or the flowing rivers, and this makes us susceptible to the changing forces of nature. Our ancient ancestors recognized these changes and welcomed them with open hearts and celebrations. Today, many people have lost the connection with the cycles of nature and therefore their centers. But still, they can't help feeling the excitement and magical energy that the October month brings. Because even when they are not centered with the Earth Mother, they are still part of the cycles and the forces are strongest at this time of year. Yes, indeed, magic is alive and crackling in the very air we breathe, in this, my favorite time of year. In honor of this time of year, I will be bringing you stories and information relative to the season, starting tonight with my presentation of The Altered States of Shamanic Consciousness, with instructions on how you can achieve them. In the second half of this show, I have a very special treat for you. I'm going to take you back in time to June 29, 1692, with CBS News and an exclusive and historical coverage of the trial of Rebecca North in Salem, Massachusetts, who is being tried in the infamous Salem Witch Trials. This will give you a feeling of what actually happened and what it would have been like to sit in the courtroom during these trials. You will witness firsthand the ignorance and horror that ran out of control in this small New England community. I have a personal connection to this time and event because I am a direct descendant of Bridget Bishop, who was the first person hung in in these uh, Salem witch trials. Interesting thing to note is that Bridget was one of the few people executed in Salem that actually was practicing some form of the craft, as it was confirmed in 1971 when archaeologists uncovered the tools of the trade in the crumbling basement walls of one of her dwellings. Was my ancestor Bridget Bishop a witch? It certainly seems so. But was she evil and in league with the devil? Of course not. The devil is not even part of their belief system and was created by the Christian church to scare people into submission. Bridget was a herbalist and a healer. I hope this broadcast will give you an insight of what really happened so long ago. In next week's show... I am going to give you a detailed account of my own personal encounter with real vampires. I am not speaking of people who choose the vampire lifestyle. I am talking about real vampires. One was a Toltec shamanic vampire that in my shamanic lineage was simply referred to as an immortal Nawal. His name was Don Miguel, and from what I was able to find out... He was probably close to 800 years old. The second vampire I encountered is one that I have never spoken about to anyone. Her name is Andrea, and she is not human. She is an energy vampire feeding on human life force. I encountered her as part of my training in my eight-year apprenticeship with the Toltec Shaman. This is a true and horrifying story because these creatures exist in our world and they often come to us in our sleep. Unfortunately for me, I was in full waking consciousness when my encounter occurred. The really unsettling thing about Andrea is that she could manifest when she chooses if I lower my guards in the right location to this very day. So next week's show is one you will not want to miss. And if you know of any vampire fans, you might want to tell them to tune in. I guarantee they will hear things that they have never encountered before. With that, I present to you my dissertation on the altered states of shamanic consciousness. Welcome to the Shaman's Brew. I'm Marcus Leader, your host and guide on this journey of discovery through our multi-dimensional magical universe. I would like to invite you to walk with me along a path of shifting awareness and alternate realities as I take you into the inner world of the Shaman. Shaman around the world are known by many names, medicine men, brujo, man or woman of knowledge, sorcerer, and healer. They can be found on every continent and in every culture, each following their own variation of spiritual beliefs and shamanic techniques. The shamanic spiritual belief structure is the oldest in known human history, making it, in essence, the oldest religion. Despite the wide cultural diversifications, shamans of all paths have a very similar technique and understandings of the universe, both visible and invisible. It is as if they are drawing upon the same knowledge base from the Earth Mother and other spiritual planes, of vibrational awareness. To these shaman, our physical world is but one of many worlds all existing in the same place, harmonically oscillating just out of interactive range with every other dimensional world. These multi-dimensional worlds, or rings as I prefer to call them, are distinct and separate from each other, but yet connected through the buffering zones that lie between them, allowing for an exchange of energy and information. It has been my personal observation to note that these worlds, or rings, seem to grow larger in size and content as you ascend higher in the harmonic frequencies. For example, the ring above our physical world, known by some as the astral world, seems to be at least four times larger than our own physical universe. I know it's, it's hard to understand how these seemingly infinite proportions can be compared to the single observational point of one observer without traversing the entire vastness of either world. But for that dilemma, I offer you this perspective known by all shamans our perception of the physical world through our senses is severely limited and often confused in illusion if we were to depend on the same perceptions through our five senses as we entered another dimensional ring such as the astral world we would be totally confused and lost when we move our awareness to these higher or lower worlds we do so by expanding our own human awareness which in turn gives us perceptions of time and space far beyond everyday normal awareness. For example, time does not flow in a linear path in other dimensional worlds or rings. You can see with your astral awareness in directions that take a while to get used to. For example, you can look at a plant or person and see not only that side of it that you're facing but also the back of it at the same time you generally also pick up information about that person or thing in a manner that is best described as just a knowing shamans see and interact with these other worlds to gain knowledge to gain power and to solve problems in the physical world shamans know that All illness first manifests in the other worlds and then trickles down into our own physical reality. So they perform many healings by attacking the problem at its source where it can be more easily manipulated and corrected. Also, many times a person can develop problems with their energy bodies and become detached or rather out of vibrational sync with the physical body. When this happens, the shaman may have to journey into the other world to facilitate the necessary vibrational adjustment and bring the person's mental or physical health back into harmony by centering their energy or spirit bodies. But how then does a shaman travel to these worlds and other rings of harmonic vibrations? They accomplish this feat by shifting their awareness away from the physical reality and quieting their minds' view of the physical world. Everything that we know of the world around us is projected inside our minds by what we have been taught since birth. This structured reality of our physical world is held in place by an endless stream of internal thought that goes on constantly within our minds, sustaining our world as we know it, and effectively filtering out all the other worlds around us. It is our harmonic oscillation of awareness that allows us to perceive each of these other worlds. So when a shaman or person travels to these other worlds, they are, in essence, altering their awareness in order to perceive and interact with these worlds. There are many ways used by the shaman to quiet this internal dialogue of sustaining chatter, including meditation, Stimulation of the senses such as chanting or drumming or dancing and the use of psychotropic mind-altering plants. I do not recommend the use of psychotropic plants to the beginner. They should only be used by the very experienced shaman or under strict supervision of a skilled shamanic teacher. The reason for this is because the danger involved is great with using these plants And because there is a certain discipline needed to make a coherent connection with the spirit of the plant, which is absolutely necessary if you are to have a controlled shift of awareness. To use these psychotropics without respect or discipline results in either a bad trip, a dumbfounded stupor, or death. So stay away from this form of awareness shifting unless you have a qualified teacher. The other two methods, although being safer, still have their drawbacks due to the level of practice needed to achieve repeatable results. In chanting or drumming, the shaman moves his body and mind into a focused state of resonance with the sounds, thereby essentially drowning out the internal dialogue that sustains our perception of the physical world in our minds. The drumming usually is at a rate of approximately 4 beats per second, And after a certain amount of time, the shaman is able to drown out the internal thoughts, and the world view collapses, allowing the awareness of perceptions from other worlds to enter. The meditation technique is often very effective, but requires discipline and practice to sustain that frame of awareness. Once the state of awareness is achieved by any of these methods, then the shaman has full access to the world of his choosing and can travel through and interact using his own personal energy. Because of the dangers or the necessary months or even years of practice required to achieve the ability to quiet the mind and shift one's awareness, most people are left behind and only able to read of these things, never tasting the thrill of traveling beyond the world to places of power and mystery beyond our wildest dreams. This is indeed a sad state of affairs for most people, but it does not have to be. We as human beings are evolving to realize energies in places beyond our physical bodies. There are now tools at our disposal that can accelerate the rate of our own personal evolution, dramatically reducing the time it takes to shift our awareness in the ways of the shaman. In as little as two weeks, I can show you how to achieve the same state of awareness that it takes the average shaman five years to accomplish. And that's just the beginning. This is not to say that you will have all the knowledge and abilities of a shaman, but you will have the tools needed to go as far as you want. You are only limited by your own beliefs. In the words of the great researcher in human consciousness, Robert Monroe, the greatest delusion is that mankind has limitations. The tools used to accelerate our human abilities of awareness are the result of a major technological breakthrough discovered by uh, Robert Monroe, who built an entire non-profit research facility in Virginia called the Monroe Institute. What Mr. Monroe discovered and developed was an audio process known as HEMISYNC, this technology makes possible the controlled evolution of the human mind, giving us all the ability to alter our own realities. This is just the tip of the widespread and far-reaching implications that this technology can open up for you. To best describe HemiSync in the most accurate manner, I will draw upon on the Monroe Institute's own description of the HemiSync technology. Hemisync is a trademarked, state-of-the-art audio technology based on the natural functioning of the brain that encourages coherent brainwave activity. Our brains produce waves or patterns of electrical energy. Different patterns indicate different mental states, such as rest, which is called occipital alpha, deep sleep, or central delta, Meditation, Central and Frontal Theta. Physical Activity, Widespread Beta. Hemisync's audio binaural beats influence these brainwave patterns, and in concert with other components of the Hemisync process, provide experiences in the focused states of consciousness. Used at the Monroe Institute, Hemisync becomes part of an entire learning process, a combination of multiplexed audio, binaural beats, and pink sound or music, verbal suggestions, relaxation exercises, guided imagery, group dynamics, and in an educational curriculum all carefully crafted to engender first-person experiences of focused states of consciousness. HemiSync influences brainwave patterns and alters states of arousal. HemiSync programs provide participants with the opportunity to experience focused states of consciousness. HemiSync does not employ the use of subliminal suggestions. HemiSync is designed for listening through stereo headphones or properly placed stereo speakers. The versatility of HemiSync gives the basic technology an almost limitless range of applications for mental, physical, and emotional well-being. The technology simply and effectively allows you to evolve into your own capabilities and direct them as you choose. It can be compared to a powerful software program that facilitates extraordinary levels of performance and productivity guided by the intention and desire of the listener. In addition to verbal instructions, this auditory guidance process involves carefully constructed blends and sequences of stereo sound patterns designed to evoke beneficial brainwave states through neurological mechanisms. Right and left auditory input is combined in the brain stems superior olivary nucleus and rooted to the reticular formation that, in turn, uses neurotransmitters to initiate changes in the neurological activity in the thalamus and cortex. Now, what this essentially means to you, is that by using hemisync programs you can achieve states of awareness similar to that of a shaman in only a matter of minutes? And even more important is that you can train your mind and body to duplicate these states of awareness with mental command triggers and not even need the hemisync signals to alter your awareness after a few weeks of practice. It is advised. To use these tools even after this uh, training and to further expand your abilities with the many programs that the Monroe Institute offers. But again, this depends on how far you want to go. If you would like to learn more about Hemisync and the Monroe Institute, you can visit them online at www.monroeinstitute.org. Also, if you would like to learn more about how to use this technology and apply it to shamanic, uh, magical, or spiritual work, I would be happy to help you in that area. And you can reach me at mark at shamansbrew.com. Thank you for joining me on this journey of discovery. Until next time, may the winds of awareness fill your sails and carry you to other worlds and magical places. Now, before we get into the CBS News coverage of the 1692 Salem Witch Trials, I'm going to give your minds a little time to cool down as we take a break and set the mood with a little tune from Juliana Hatfield called The Witch's Song.
1: This is John Daly in the Salem Court of Massachusetts Bay Province. The recess in the witchcraft trial of 71-year-old Rebecca Norse, which started at 10 o'clock in the morning of this 29th day of June, 1692, is just about over and the trial should soon resume. As you know, Rebecca Norse, great-grandmother and mother of eight, whose husband owns a 300-acre farm not far from the Crane River Bridge, went on trial this morning as a witch. The penalty for witchcraft is death. This courthouse on Townhouse Lane is jammed to the rafters.
2: Salem, Massachusetts, June 1692.
1: CBS is there. A Salem court tries a woman as a witch. CBS invites you to believe that our microphone is there waiting for the verdict. All things are as they were then except for one thing. CBS is there. This broadcast, the fourth in a special summer series produced and directed for Columbia by Robert Louis Sheon, is based on authentic historical fact and quotations. And now, Salem,
2: June 29, 1692, and John Daly. Will tell them
1: how this trial is progressing. The tension with which this day opened here in Salem has grown greater, if possible. In this trial, second in the biggest roundup of suspects these colonies have ever seen, two key witnesses for the prosecution... This morning testified that the defendant, Rebecca Norse, was responsible for fits, seizures, and the unnatural torment which have been plaguing a dozen or so Salem girls for the last few months. Another woman named by these girls, Bridget Bishop, has already been hanged. And waiting in jail at this very moment to be tried by this same court on these same charges of witchcraft are 150 local residents who were seized in their homes in nearby Lynn, Topsfield, Marblehead, Amesbury, Andover, Wells, as well as Salem, and as far off as Boston. This morning, a prosecution witness, the Reverend Mr. Samuel Paris, Minister of Salem Village, testified that the alleged unnatural activities of Rebecca Norse against the afflicted children are actually part of a much larger plot against the government. Is that correct, Mr. Paris? If that plot had not been discovered, the plotters would soon have succeeded in sinking this government. On the stand this morning, Mr. Paris, you spoke of proof. They have been holding meetings, sir. They have been holding meetings and plotting to root out the Christian religion from this country. I see. You said, too, that they were prepared to blow up all the churches and wreck our government. And set up instead their own diabolism. So, well, I'm told, sir, that before you came to this church, you were a merchant in the Barbados Isles. I gave up commerce for the ministry. You brought back with you some slaves, sir. Two. Two. Is it true, Mr. Paris, that there has been a dispute going on... between you and members of your congregation... as to what were the terms of your salary agreed upon two and a half years ago? When I
2: accepted the call to this
1: parish two years and seven months ago... My salary was clearly determined. But there is a dispute, isn't there, as to whether it gives you permanent ownership of the parsonage or merely the use of the ministry and the pasture. The salary for my services includes full and permanent ownership of the parsonage and surrounding grounds. Those who have disputed it are simply not in possession of the facts. I see, but is the prisoner's husband, is Francis Norse, among those who have disputed your claim to permanent ownership, Mr. Parris? Francis Norse is not in possession of the facts. Just one more question, Mr. Parris. About the committee charged with furnishing you with firewood last November... When you tried to have them brought to law... The committee had stubbornly and
2: for a long time been derelict in its duty to furnish the parsonage with
1: firewood. But it was argued then that an extra sum had been added to your annual salary to compensate you for finding your own firewood. But that's Mr. Somebody... Paris, Rebecca Norse's husband, the husband of the woman against whom you testified this morning... Is on the firewood committee, is he not? Rebecca Noss has been plotting the destruction of our government. Thank you very much, yes. Reverend Samuel Paris. Also on the stand this morning, we heard Dr. William Griggs, village physician, testify that a number of his patients had been bewitched. Dr. Griggs... You said that you yourself had seen evidence of their unnatural affliction.
3: I saw the ministers, the Reverend Mr. Paris's
1: own niece, try to fly up the chimney. You described how she was picked up by an unseen force. An
3: unseen force hurled her through the room so that she flew from wall to wall. Then she began to show every evidence of starting to fly, stretching up her arms as high as she could and crying, Wish, wish, wish.
1: This morning, Dr. Griggs, you testified that the girls were under the baleful influence of an evil eye. Now, speaking as a medical man, what is the explanation of the evil eye?
3: When a witch turns her evil eye on a subject, an invisible and impalpable fluid darts from the eye of the witch and penetrates the brain of the bewitched. From then on, the witch can do with the bewitched as she pleases.
1: Thank you, Dr. Griggs. The excitement over the witches brings to a head the anxiety and unrest which has been disturbing these people of Salem. Dissatisfaction with a succession of governors, high taxes, a high cost of living, and lately rumors of war make it easy to understand why the distracted Salemites feel, as one put it to me this morning, that Satan is loose in New England. And why they're not surprised to learn that 150 of their own neighbors and even friends have been plotting with the devil against them and their government. The judges are coming in now. Judges Sewell, Sargent, Winthrop, Richards of Boston, Corwin and Gedney of Salem. And here comes the deputy governor, the Honorable William Stoughton, who has been acting as chief justice during the trial. This is the sign that the recess is over. The prisoner is about to be brought in and the trial resumed. The crowd grows quiet. Attorney General Thomas Newton has walked over to say something to Deputy Governor Stoughton. Here she and Oh, here she comes. Here comes Rebecca North, accused witch. She's flanked by George Herrick on the right, another constable on the left. Her husband is standing up. Francis Norse is waving to his wife, trying to get her attention, but the elderly prisoner seems to be either too indifferent or too tired to Father! get up. That was her daughter's voice. The voice you heard was Sarah Norse's, the defendant's 28-year-old daughter. She called out, Mother, and her mother seems to have heard her. She raises her head. She looks a little bewildered. Judge Stoughton is pounding on the desk for order. The trial's about to start. In the front row, the afflicted girls, Anne Putnam and Abigail Williams, who are here to testify against Rebecca Norse, are staring at her. The marshal helps the prisoner to the platform where she stood this morning. Apparently, Rebecca Norse is still not going to sit. She's going to stand through this session. She's standing about eight feet from the judges now, facing the judges. Attorney General Newton has opened the trial, and he tells Rebecca Uh, Norse, you are now in the hands of authority. I assure you to answer the questions of the court truthfully, and not to lie. He warns her not to lie, and now I'll throw open the microphone on the witness stand and let you hear the proceedings. Rebecca Norse, why do you hurt these children?
3: I do not hurt them.
1: If you are guilty of this fact,
3: do you think you could hide it?
2: The Lord knows. Anne Putnam, have you seen this
1: woman hurt you?
4: Yes, she beat me last night.
1: Despite the fact that Rebecca Norse was locked in the Salem jail last night, 12-year-old Ann Putnam accuses her of having beaten her in her own home, thereby implying that Rebecca Norse can be in two places at once and is therefore a witch. Abigail Williams, have you been hurt by this woman?
3: Yes.
1: Now, Rebecca Norse, here are two Ann Putnam, the child and Abigail Williams, who complain of your hurting them. What do you say to it?
3: I do not hurt them.
1: This morning you heard a confession of one Abigail Hobbs' confessed witch. She named you as the queen of a witch's feast. What do you say to it?
3: How could she say that? She is one of us.
1: What do you mean by that? By what? What do you mean by one of us?
3: She is like the rest of us, innocently imprisoned.
1: Didn't you say you would tell the truth? Who hurts these children now? Look upon them.
3: May I go to prayer?
1: We have not sent for you to go to prayer. Why did you stop coming to church when the girls were seized with fits?
3: It made me ill.
1: Why didn't you visit them in their affliction the way the other neighbors did?
3: I was not able to go out of doors because of illness.
1: What sir. sort of illness?
3: I suffer from weakness of the stomach, sir. There's <coughs> a man! her What did
1: he say to you?
3: We mustn't believe everything these distracted children say. There's no one whispering in the ear.
1: You dare to lie before this whole assembly. You are now before authority. I expect the truth. What did the man whisper in your ear?
3: I ask anyone here to tell me they saw anyone beside me. You can see I am all alone. No!
1: There has been talk among your neighbors, Rebecca Nos, that your illness is of a supernatural character. What do you say to that?
3: I've had difficult times, sir. I am the mother of eight children, and I suffer with the witness that any woman would, my age and condition.
1: Do you have any wounds? Uh, Attorney General Newton has asked the defendant perhaps the most dangerous question of all so far. Do you have any wounds? Referring to those marks found on the person of a witch which betray that she is in league with Satan. But Rebecca Norse being slightly doof, deaf, he has to repeat the question. Do you have any wounds? I have none but old age, she answers. 71-year-old Rebecca Norse is beginning to tire. Her white hair somewhat disheveled is clinging to her forehead. She's wringing her hands, nervously clasping and... Something strange is happening. Twelve-year-old Anne Putnam is screaming, she is pinching, she is pinching. And now Abigail Williams is screaming, she is choking me. Both of these girls seem to be having some kind of a spasm. They're rising on the floor, clutching at their throats and crying that Rebecca North is choking them. Deputy Marshal Herrick and another constable have run over. And they're each holding one of the prisoners' hands to keep her from pinching and choking the girls, who are at least ten feet away from her. They're now manicuring her hands behind her back. The turmoil is dying down. The spectators are taking their seats. Attorney General Newton again turns to the prisoner who seems visibly... You shaken. see, Rebecca Doss, what a great condition these girls are in. Why do you hurt them? I, I do not hurt them. When your hands are freed, the girls are pinched and choked.
3: Yes, I sit down? I do not feel
1: well. You are strong enough, Rebecca Doss, to bewitch these girls. You are strong enough to stand at your trial. Do you think these girls suffer voluntarily or involuntarily? Do you say, Rebecca Noss, do these girls suffer voluntarily or involuntarily?
3: Don't.
1: The court is not able to hear you.
3: May, may my husband come up to wipe me for it, sweat me for it. My hands are
1: bound. These girls charge you with hurting them. If you think they suffer involuntarily, then you admit that what they say is true. And if you think they suffer not willingly, then you are calling them murderers. Which do you say, Rebecca Noss?
3: I do not mean to call them murderers. I I don't know what to make of their conduct.
1: Answer the question, Rebecca Noss. Do you think these girls suffer against their will or not?
3: I do not think they suffer against their will.
1: Rebecca Norse is showing extraordinary courage. Old, alone, pitted against men of superior education and legal training. With no lawyer to defend her, she nevertheless sticks to her point that the girl's fits are not involuntary. Now Anne Putnam's mother, Mrs. Thomas Putnam, takes the stand. Tell the court what happened. One morning,
5: Rebecca North came to me. What time was it? It was very early morning. Just as it grew light, she was still in her nightgown. She came to me, and she brought a little red book in her hand.
1: She tried to make you sign it?
5: She said if I wouldn't, she would tear my soul out of my body. What happened then? Then there appeared to me six children in winding sheets. And they called me out. Who were these children? They told me they were the children of my sister Baker, who lived in Boston. And they said that Rebecca North. Had murdered, and they told me to go and tell it to the magistrate, or they would tear me to pieces.
1: (gasps) The testimony piling up against Rebecca North has become more serious, if possible. And now another neighbor of the accused, Sarah Pepper, a widow, takes the stand. Now, without fear, will you tell the court, Sarah Pepper? Whether anything ever took place between the prisoner and any member of your family?
4: Yes, sir. About this time, three years ago, my dear husband, Benjamin Pepper, now dead, may the Lord bless his soul, was as well as I ever knew him in my life.
6: Yes, yes. Uh, Go on, please.
4: Uh, He was healthy and happy till one Sunday morning, Rebecca Norse.
1: The same Rebecca Norse who now stands charged with witchcraft.
4: The same Rebecca Norse, who now stands charged with witchcraft.
1: Uh, What did she do?
4: She came to our house and fell to scolding and railing at him because our pigs had gotten into her fields. Your fields
1: are close together?
4: Yes, sir. And we're only supposed to keep half the fence mended. It's up to her to mend the other half. That was the agreement. Uh, What
1: happened then?
4: Her side of the fence was down and our pigs got through. We told her we kept those pigs hoppled, but there wasn't a thing you could say to quiet her down. She railed and scolded, calling on her son Benjamin to go and get a gun and
3: kill the pig. How did
1: your husband answer her? Oh, my
4: poor husband never said one word amiss to her. And it was right after that he was taken with a fit.
1: Was his seizure the same kind as the afflicted girls have been having? His seizure
4: was the same kind as the afflicted girls have been having.
1: Did your husband have any seizures after that? My
4: poor husband was never the same again. The day before he died, he talked very cheerful. But he was seized at midnight. And this fit lasted till the next night. And then he
3: died. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
1: the deputy marshal is leading the weeping widow Pepper back to her seat, and Attorney General Newton turns to confer with the seven judges behind him. This looks bad for the defendant. So far, all of the testimony. Wait a minute. A young man is coming towards the judge's bench. It's Samuel North, the prisoner's sorry. son. The sheriff challenges I want him. To speak. If you have any evidence to present Samuel Noss, present it at the proper time.
6: This is the proper time, and I ask leave of the court to present my evidence. Tell your story. On the 27th of March, I and my sister's husband, John Tarbell, he's here now and he'll swear to everything I say. Tell your story. John and I went up to Thomas Putnam's to find out why his wife and daughter were making shocking accusations against my mother. The
1: reason why is no secret. You heard them tell the court.
6: I wanted them to tell me. At the house, I found Miss Putnam, her daughter Anne, and one of Anne's friends. I asked young Anne how she came to name my mother among the witches. I said, did she mention my mother's name first, or did someone else say it to her?
1: What point are you trying to
6: make? When I asked young Anne how she first came to mention my mother's name among the witches, she replied that she had seen the apparition of a pale-faced woman sitting in her grandmother's chair. I said, who was that woman? She said she didn't know her name. I said, who told you to say my mother's name? Are you sick that? That's when her friend spoke up. Why, Anne? don't you remember? She said it was your mother. That made Miss Putnam very angry. She cried why it was not. It was you told her to say Rebecca Norse. Then they turned on each other and they said it was you. It was you told her to say the name. I still don't understand the point you are trying to make, Samuel Norse. What I'm trying to say is that not one of those who now accuse my mother... Would admit it was they first named her among the witch. Sir last, they named her. Take
1: Attorney your seat. General Newton seems to be a little impatient as he m- motions Samuel Norse to return to his seat. His sister has risen. The Norse family seems to be on the attack now in defense of their mother. Sarah Norse, the defendant's 28-year-old daughter, without being asked, without permission, has come up and is now standing before the bench. Attorney General Newton ignores her. He's conferring with the judges. Rebecca Norse is looking at her daughter. She's smiling, a strange, vague smile. Now Attorney General Newton has turned to Sarah North. He's taking her testimony.
6: I was in the meeting house on the 24th of March, the day the committee first examined my mother. I was there when Miss Bibber... You are
1: referring to the widow, Bibber, who lives in Wenham?
6: That's the one. I was there when she went into a fit. The
1: court knows that. I (laughs) was
6: watching her when she began to scream that my mother was sticking her with pins. You're
1: adding nothing new to the facts, Sarah North. If that is why you have asked for permission to testify... But
6: I saw Miss Bibber take the pins out of her clothes. I saw her take the pins out of her clothes. I saw, I saw Miss Biver take some pins out of her clothes and hold them between her fingers. Then I saw her clasp her hands around her knees, and that's when she began to scream. that my mother was sticking pins in her. That's a liar. you're a, a
1: liar. One of the spectators He's probably, probably sees Missus Bibber screaming. That's He's a, a lie, you know it. it's a liar. Sarah Norris is answering, matter, her shouting my it's my the mother. truth, and you he know it. The marshal is making you. her go back to her seat.
2: Come on down and take your seat. I would like to
1: speak. Benjamin Putnam is asking to testify. The Attorney General is inviting him to come forward. He's asking the brother-in-law of Mrs. Thomas Putnam, who testified against Rebecca North just a minute ago, to come forward.
2: I have a paper here, signed by 39 people of Salem and Salem Village. I ask the court's permission to read it. You may read it. We whose name... Uh, Will you read it a little louder? (laughs) We whose names are hereunto subscribed, being desired by Francis Norse to declare what we know concerning his wife's conversation for some time past, can testify to all whom it may concern that we have known her for many years. And according to our observation, her life and conversation were as she claimed it and we never had any cause or grounds to suspect her of any such thing as she is now accused of. Signed, Benjamin Putnam, Sarah Putnam, Job Swinnerton, Esther Swinnerton, Samuel Abbey, Hepziburay,
1: Daniel Andrews. This Andrew, is a surprise. Zero, Thirty-nine of Rebecca Norse's and neighbors, including Anne Putnam's and own brother-in-law, testified by petition order, to their belief in Rebecca Norse's innocence. Rebecca North seems stunned by this unexpected turn in her favor. The spectators, too, seem visibly impressed by the long list of responsible and respectable names. Mrs. Putnam looks startled. She keeps brushing her hair out of her eyes. Her face is pale. Judge Stoughton is turning to the jury. <laughs> Didn't you bring the devil with you? Didn't you tell me to death God
5: and die? How often have you
4: eaten and Mrs.
1: Putnam. She's screaming. How often have you eaten and drunk your own damnation? She's hysterical. She's becoming violent. She's ripping her clothes. Her husband has received the court's permission to take her outside, and he's lifted her bodily. He's carrying out, kicking and screaming out of the courtroom, and has taken her out now. The trial can start again. Rebecca North seems to be on the point of fainting. It doesn't look as if she can keep standing on her feet much longer. Once again, Judge Duncan... Wait a minute, something else has happened. A woman among the spectators threw her shoe and hit Rebecca Norse in the face. There's a red streak on Rebecca Norse's right temple where Mrs. Pope's shoe hit her. Rebecca Norse looks white and shaken. The courtroom is quieting down. Judge Stoughton turns to the jury. Apparently there's going to be no more testimony. He's going to send out the jury for a verdict right now.
2: I charge that you, being the judges of the facts, if you find that Rebecca Norse did bewitch the said girls, Anne Putnam and Abigail Williams, so that they were sore afflicted and tormented, then you must find her guilty of witchcraft under the statute of James I.
1: The jury has risen now and is filing out of this courtroom to consider the verdict. The judges are leaving, too, and Deputy Marshal Herrick is taking Rebecca Norse from the courtroom. Some of the spectators are leaving for a breath of fresh air. The jury is out of the courtroom now. Of course, there is no possible way of knowing how long they will be. They may return momentarily, and if they do, we will switch back here to the courtroom immediately. Meantime, there are about 150 other suspects, as we told you, who have been rounded up in this drive and who are now in nearby jails waiting to be tried by this same court. My colleagues Harry Marble and Ken Roberts are at this (coughs) moment in two of those prisons, Boston and Ipswich, With CBS microphones, and we switch you first to Harry Marble in Boston Prison. This is Harry Marble in Boston Prison. I'm standing in a room about 25 by 35 and 7 feet high. The walls are of stone and the windows are barred. Leaning against the walls and chained to the benches here are about 25 or 30 men who are waiting to be tried for witchcraft. Right beside me, his hands manacled, is Navy Captain John Alden. Captain Alden... What are the specific charges against you? Witchcraft, I presume. You have to pay your own room and board while you're in prison, don't you, Captain? Yes. And should I have the misfortune to be found guilty, my family would have to pay the cost of my execution. And, of course, my property would immediately be confiscated by the authorities. The deputy governor, I imagine. I am told that some of your fellow prisoners confessed to practicing witchcraft, Captain. I will tell you how one confessed. A boy of about eighteen. They had him tied neck and heels until blood flowed from his mouth and nose. He confessed. One more question, Captain Alden. Are you by any chance related to the John Alden who married Priscilla Mullen? That was my father, sir. My parents met on the Mayflower coming over from the other side. Thank you, Captain John Alden. This is Harry Marble in Boston Prison. I now switch you to Ken Roberts in Ipswich Jail. This is Ken Roberts in Ipswich. The jail here is crowded with women of all ages. Beside me here is the prisoner, Dorcas Good, accused witch. How old are you, Dorcas?
5: I'm four years old.
1: Four-year-old Dorcas Good was arrested the same day as Rebecca Norse.
5: I'm four, going on five.
1: Dorcas just corrected her age. She is four, going on five. Why are you here, Dorcas?
5: I want a piece of bread with honey.
1: Do you know why they put you here, Dorcas?
5: My name is Dorcas Good, and I am four
1: years old, going on five. Chained beside four-year-old Dorcas here is Mrs. Rebecca Jacobs of Salem Town. Why have they put you in prison, Mrs. Jacobs?
3: They ran in the street. They ran in the street, and I said, look at the children. They are running in the street.
1: Mrs. Jacobs. Then
3: the men said, these are your children. They are running after you. Tell them to go back.
1: Your children saw you arrested, Mrs. Jacobs? Come
3: home, Mother. Mother, come home. I want my children. I want my children. I want my mother.
1: Do you get enough to eat children. here, Mrs. Jacobs?
3: Children, don't cry. Mother will be home. The nightmill miller just taking your mother for a walk.
1: Mrs. Jacobs, have your children been allowed to visit you?
3: Black roots and windflowers, sweet Mary and lilacs, they grow in my garden. When night comes,
4: they close
3: their
5: eyes and go to sleep. I want my children. I want my baby. I want a slice of bread and
1: honey. I'm sorry, Mrs. Jacobs, but the message has just been handed to me. The jury trying Rebecca North has just come back into the courtroom. So this is Ken Roberts returning you to John Daly in Salem. <laughs> this is John Daly in the Salem courtroom. The jury has come back. The jury, charged with the fate of Rebecca Norse, has just returned. The judges are in their places. The prisoner, her hand still manacled, stands facing the bar. The spectators are silent, waiting. The jurymen have taken their seats, all except Thomas Fisk, the foreman. The foreman is standing, and now Judge Stoughton turns to the jury.
2: Have you reached a verdict? We have. What have you found? We find the defendant
1: not guilty. Not guilty. The jury has found Rebecca Norse not guilty. She looks stunned and stands bewildered and confused, pale and shaken. Her husband is fighting his way up to her. 72-year-old Francis Norse is crying, and his wife, Rebecca Norse, is now in his arms. Rebecca Norse, her gray head, sunk on his shoulder, is crying for the first time since this trial began. Her sons and daughters are kissing and hugging her. They're all trying to touch her. They're patting her face, her hair, her dress, and they're laughing, and at the same time, tears are streaming down their cheeks. Now Judge Stoughton has left the bench and is talking with Thomas Fisk, the foreman of the jury. George Herrick, the deputy marshal, is pushing his way through to Rebecca Norse, probably to tell her that he's glad she was acquitted. The deputy marshal is saying something to Rebecca Norse now, and for some reason or the other, he's taking her by the shoulder. And now the jury is going out again, and Sam Norse has run over to the deputy governor. He seems to be having a heated argument with Judge Stoughton. I'm going to get over there to find out what's going on. There's something going on. There's a great deal of confusion all you around can't
6: here. Do this to my mother. I did not impose on the jury. I've merely given them a fact which they had overlooked. Mr. North, Mr. North, what has happened? They're making the jury convict my mother. The jury comes back with a verdict of not guilty, and Stoughton sends them out again. They come back, and he tells them that they have misinterpreted the facts. They have my mother on the stand, and they tell her Abigail Hobbs said she was a witch. And she says, how could Abigail say that? She is one of us. Now the judge says that when my mother said she's one of us, she admitted she was a witch too. But he heard my mother say she didn't mean that. She meant Miss Hobbs was just one of the prisoners. Why, what Stoughton's done is tell the jury to hang her. But why? Why should
1: Judge Stoughton do this?
6: Because they've got some people in office around here who are scared of being pushed out. There are too many people who don't like them. So they find themselves some scapegoats. They take women like my mother. They say she's a witch. They say they're trying to bewitch our children and sink the government. All they're trying to do is save their own necks, and for that they're going to hang my mother.
1: Sam Norris is angry, frenzied. He seems to be absolutely sure the jury will change its verdict. I've never seen anything like this happen in a courtroom before, and it's hard to believe. But we'll we'll see. The jury is coming back already. They've only been out a short while. With Tom Fisk leading them, they're coming back into the jury box. Their faces are grave. Judge Stoughton is banging his gavel for order and has turned down to jury foreman Thomas Fisk.
2: Have you reached a verdict? We have... What is your verdict?
1: We find Rebecca Norse guilty as charged. Mother,
3: mother!
1: Mother! Rebecca Norse has been found guilty. What Sam Norse feared has happened. Everything he said was apparently true. And if this is contempt of this court, let it be so. A woman adjudged innocent by a jury of her peers, by almost precise direction of a presiding judge, has been found guilty and now must pay the supreme penalty. This is
2: Salem, June 29,
1: 1692.
2: Rebecca Norse is guilty, and the witch hunt goes on.
1: This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: You have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on the Jackalope Media Network.